Welcome to Reckoning. My name is Ingrid, and I'm starting this podcast to share open and honest discussions about our experiences with death. I'm hoping that as a culture, we can grow to talk about it without it being feared as a heavy, scary, and overwhelming topic. Let's talk about it more, get a little more comfortable with it, wrestle and wonder and ask questions. Let's reckon with it. We all have to deal with this aspect of life. We will lose everyone we know, and we ourselves will die. So how can we face this reality with eyes more open, with some grace, humility, understanding, and even appreciation? How can we embrace this aspect of being a human and use it as a way to grow, learn, and expand? The goal of this podcast is to turn toward these shared experiences, using our stories and collective wisdom to gain some courage and strength and skill to face it. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to and have these conversations with me. Thanks for being willing to reckon with the topic of death and dying. This episode, I talk with a really dear friend of mine named Britt, and she shares the story of losing her brother Evan to suicide at a very young age. Britt is a wise and deep soul, so our conversation dives pretty deep quickly. And just wanted to put out a warning and a spoiler alert that I cry while I'm talking with her, which is new for me in this project. So just warning you. <laughs> I also want to make a comment that this episode is being produced during the coronavirus epidemic, and many of us are at home and isolated. And grief and loss and death are very present topics for many of us in the world right now. So I just wanted to say that if you're listening, and that's true for you, that you're not alone. visiting for the weekend and it's so lovely to see you mm. and the sun is shining which feels like such a gift in the middle of February to get sunshine yeah. and smell Daphne blossoms and pick rosemary mm. yeah it's mm. been lovely I'm glad you're here and thanks for coming to visit yeah and thanks for making time mm -hmm. to support my project absolutely friend um I have known you for a while and I know that you lost your brother many years ago, but I actually don't, I really don't know the details of that loss. And so, yeah, curious if you, it sounds like you'd be open to sharing that story. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I feel like it was something that uh, we got to know each other through, or maybe some of our deepening of our mm -hmm. friendship was mm -hmm. talking about loss and it's actually not a story I really told until I got to college mm. which I'll talk a little bit about the reason why but it's been a process of me learning to even how to tell my story mm. which 
is because uh, my brother died by suicide when mm. I was 12, mm. almost 13, mm. and he was 15 years old, mm. and it was a complete surprise. Mm. We had no awareness of mental health, no awareness that he was struggling, uh, no suicide note, mm. no, no indication, and that was about 20, almost 20 years ago uh, this spring, mm. and we're a lot more aware of mental health now and of suicide. But when that happened, that was shocking to a lot of people in the community. Mm. And it felt, I felt very different. Uh, my family, I think might say also that we felt that had not been a part of our community in the mm. past. I'm sure it had, but maybe it wasn't talked about as much because uh, suicide is quite prevalent and growing more and more and more prevalent. Mm. But because of that, I, you know, because I was 12 years old and because we didn't have a language to talk about suicide and because there's so much shame and guilt tied around it, I just didn't really talk about it when I was young. Mm. The one person who was close to my age in my family, we had family, but they lived far away had died mm. so my parents were in their own grief process and worked as hard as they could be to be present for me but were of course carrying their own emotional burden mm. and I felt like it was kind of me going through it you can't talk to a lot of other 12 year olds about that experience mm. yeah there's just not a way to kind of support a child who is going through that I couldn't show up at school and talk to my friends about there wasn't really a entry point for a lot of people I knew to know how to hold space mm. or ask questions or be able to handle mm. um, what I was experiencing when I was going through that so I think because of that because it was I was in middle school and mm. then I went to school with the same people through high school I just never talked about it mm. there was never really an invitation to do that so then I got to college and started to mm -hmm. have that that um, time and space with new people to talk about it mm -hmm. and maybe a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And what was his name? Evan. Evan. Mm -hmm. I think I did know that. Mm -hmm. And Evan was your only sibling. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I had a, I mean, and I think college is an interesting time for putting into perspective our family stories because yeah. we're... So like we're enmeshed in our own family dynamic and narrative and it's kind of hard to see it as that until you step away from separated. it mm -hmm. and then that perspective of oh how are these people relating to their siblings mm -hmm. or their parents is like so different than mm -hmm. me and I remember having similar sort of realizations that I'm seeing my family dynamics from other perspectives mm -hmm. and so that makes sense that that would be a time for that to come up or be unveiled. Mm -hmm. um, I also really appreciate what you're saying about our friendship deepening through those conversations because this is kind of a silly analogy, but um, in Harry Potter, <laughs> there are there are some characters that can see these creatures. Are you familiar with this? I am. There are these like there's like these coaches that get pulled by this invisible force and then after Harry has like witnessed death 
he can see them mm-hmm. and not everybody can. Mm-hmm. And I think about that with some of my like dearest people in my life mm-hmm. that um, we bond and connect over the just the conversation and the shared experience of mm-hmm. grief and loss. And that's not to say that other people can't bond or connect or understand, but they they just don't have that same intimacy with yeah. death. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's a different flavor, or mm-hmm. for me, it's been an experience. It's a different way of looking at things when mm-hmm. you've had that intimacy mm-hmm. of grief and holding your own deep sadness mm-hmm. and holding it for your family. Mm-hmm. That changes. It changed the fabric of me as a human. Mm-hmm. And things looked very differently for me and my family. Mm-hmm. And I think that led to part of the, I feel very different from people around mm-hmm. me because mm-hmm. I had this whole other experience and had gotten to know and see my family in a way that most 12 year olds don't see, mm-hmm. um, see their family. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, th- I think what you're naming too is, I think in general, our culture whatever our culture means, Mm -hmm. but um, does not do a great job of holding space for people to talk about a process death, but also especially in an age-related context, which as people, you know, maybe enter their 30s, 40s, and 50s, their parents start to die and the conversations come up a little more frequently or it's more common to like, okay, we're dealing with mom and dad. Um, And it's much it is much rarer for people to have conversations, I would say, with 12-year-olds that have lost siblings. Um, So, yeah, do you want to share about what your grief looked like as a 12-year-old and how that's shifted and changed over time or your understanding of grief? Yeah, that's such a good question because that's... I keep coming back to my understanding of grief and I imagine you you would relate that... Um, my understanding of grief grief has changed so much mm-hmm. over the years. What I understand now of my coping mechanisms when I was that age was largely to, okay, it's now me, my mom, and my dad. If I am okay, then both of my parents are okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a lot of me, like, we're just going to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. We're going to move ahead. To our normal, I should state. But if I'm able to appear that I'm doing okay, then I can see reflected in my folks mm-hmm. that they're doing okay. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it was not dealing with it, not dealing with it at all. And it's been interesting then to go to college and these other different phases of my life where I've been farther and farther away geographically from my folks and have had more time to process and understand it and realize it's shifted so much because the pain that I had then is very different as a uh, as someone in my 30s. A lot of the grief that's been happening lately is, or the way that it's come up for me is I'm seeing a lot of folks around me who are developing really strong bonds with their siblings. Mm. And that was something that I didn't think about when I was 12 years old, how I would feel now, but that grief Mm -hmm. hits me and that trauma hits me of 
that next wave of realization of, wow, I really wish I had. That is such a special bond to have with a sibling Mm -hmm. that there's not quite any other relationship like that that Mm -hmm. exists. So somebody who knows the intimacy of how you were raised Mm -hmm. is able to understand the chaos and trauma and beauty and joy of being raised in a particular family Mm -hmm. and is able to talk to you about that as adults and maybe able to share or hold in frustrations or celebrations that Mm -hmm. you have. And I would love to have that relationship. Mm -hmm. I would love it. Mm -hmm. And I don't have it. And when I see people experience these like very deep, beautiful relationships with their siblings, Mm -hmm jealousy and loss and um, desire to have that often is a part of it Mm -hmm. and I just feel that grief come up again about it Mm -hmm. yeah I I hear what you're saying about that grief of um, it's like a comparative loss I guess Mm -hmm. Um, and that is hit at different stages of my life pretty consistently Mm -hmm. and it was hard there's almost a little bit of resistance to talking about my grief and the story mm-hmm. in a way where it's captured in this moment because mm-hmm. I know I'll look back in five years probably and could listen to this and feel that things have shifted again for me sure. or look differently. Mm-hmm. It's truly an ever an ever growing process. And it makes me feel so curious about healing work mm-hmm. with how much trauma that exists in the world and Healing work is not something you do once, of course, and then walk away. Mm. It's like a continual process of mm. holding space, acknowledging it, being intimate, being uncomfortable with it, mm. um, being held being held in it or with it, whether you're holding that space for yourself or somebody else. Mm-hmm. And just for my own like tiny bit of um, what I've experienced, I feel so consuming and so overwhelming and so desolate at times that I just imagine what it takes for all of us to move through healing Mm -hmm. and trauma as it moves in these continuations Um, does that make sense yeah yeah I mean I I'm so glad that you're naming trauma and healing in the same you know breadth of conversation because I think we often will name one or the other, but not together. And recently I was at an event and they um, were naming all these like facts and statistics about trauma, but they chose to start that conversation by saying healing is possible. And I think it's important that we have that frame that we are moving through the world blindly if we're not acknowledging trauma and pain and loss and grief. And we're also moving through the world blindly if we don't acknowledge that there's healing and growth and, and beauty and joy that comes out of moving through those experiences. And, um, and I think what you say is really a, valuable that we, it's not something you can just attend to once. It, this is our life's work and this is a process that unfolds. And I, yeah, I think especially having the perspective of a loss that happened 20 years ago, yeah, feels very different and has shaped your identity over decades Mm -hmm. and I'm curious if there is some tie in uh, we were having a conversation earlier about the way that our society is structured and part of our discomfort with really being present and wrestling with this idea of death is we're also largely in a deficit mindset Mm. and we function as a deficit mindset Mm -hmm. but when looking at trauma 
that deficit mindset has, I wonder if it has that tie to you are broken, you will always be broken. Mm. And the abundance way of looking at it is healing as possible. Mm-hmm. And we have the ability and maybe the responsibility to to do the work of healing ourselves and each other mm-hmm. and doing that work to confront it um, in order for us to collectively mm-hmm. make a shift in the way that we're grappling with and understanding mm-hmm. death, dying, grief, loss. Yeah, and what you were saying about being a 12-year-old that felt very isolated by that experience, it is such a it is such a failing of our communities to support people in these experiences because it is completely untrue that you are alone in that experience. And so mm-hmm. shame on us for abetting people to feel that way, mm-hmm. you know, and I say shame on us, not like I'm pointing the blame at any individual, but like, yeah, we collectively uphold a status quo that ultimately harms people because we don't give space for we like we create and contribute to that feeling of isolation Mm -hmm. yeah we were talking about earlier like loneliness and social isolation yes um and the truth is that we're all these little we, we have so many universal experiences death being one of them that it's it's silly it's silly that like we walk around feeling like I'm the only one and no one right. can validate me or share that experience with me. So yeah, I guess I must be the only one. Mm-hmm. And yet the person maybe right next to you has a similar feeling or experience. Mm-hmm. You know, like the same thing people talk about with depression. Like, mm-hmm. um, a husband and wife can both have depression or major depressive disorder and be treating it separately and not talking about it because of the stigma. Around yeah, it. And we're all how are we walking around with these same things and feeling so alone at the same time? Right. Yeah. (sighs) That's, well, this, this is the work, right? This is our work (laughs) to change some of these conversations. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder too, what I see some of the things that I grew up really struggling with, like a sense of worthiness, a sense Mm. of self-love, a sense of I am enough, a sense of, needing to prove that I'm worthy is a lot of it I think really stems from the belief that I didn't have the ability to process through that experience with people around me or Mm -hmm. even with my family fully we were all in our own processes processes of grief Mm -hmm. and my just intuitive survival self at 12 years old said I sense that I need to kind of fill the role of both me and my brother. Mm. I need my parents to feel like mm. they didn't fail. I don't. That was my projection. I don't know if that's held by both of my parents that they failed. I think that's a common, mm. a common experience that comes with the loss of suicide. And I felt like I kind of had to fill the space for mm. both me and my brother as a way of proving we are a functioning family, you are good parents, I can make up for this, I can mm-hmm. I can make you feel, I can make that pain of losing that person go away for you by being 
super, more than I'm capable of being. If I'm super Brit, then yes. they won't notice mm-hmm. or they won't feel as bad about. And that, mm. you know, that the challenge with that is that I, it's not, I can never take that space and that loss for my family. Mm. I can never fill that for them. And instead of just being okay with that or having a way to have conversations, that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. what I did for most of my adolescence growing up was, mm-hmm. and feeling like I was failing a lot mm-hmm. because I was failing because mm-hmm. it's not my responsibility mm-hmm. to hold that, mm-hmm. but didn't, didn't know that. And so kept, I feel like kept trying to show up and kept feeling like I was failing and mm-hmm. led to a sense of, I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been complicated to unpack that and maybe that's not the clearest way to express that but that's I keep it's like a spiral I keep learning about about who I am and a lot of it has this root of this really really sudden really surprising thing that happened in my childhood Mm. um, really devastating thing that happened in my childhood and then it spiraling in all of these different ways and showing up in all these different facets of my life Mm -hmm. I want to acknowledge that and then also acknowledge that it's gotten easier for my family and I to have conversations. Part of the reason why I moved back up to Washington was because I really wanted to develop a deeper relationship with my family and have some of these conversations Mm -hmm. and do a little bit more of the work of how was that for you? How are you feeling? I'm in a much different place now. I feel more Mm. um, mature and that I can hold space for them to have those inquiry conversations and really get to know their perspective on how... That experience was for them. Part of the joy of deepening with my family of origin is to be able to get to know who they are as people and mm-hmm. what that experience was like for them. And mm-hmm. I'm curious if they're the same same stories I'm telling myself mm-hmm. or the same stories that I've had or if they're well completely surprised me. Mm-hmm. I mean, several things. Uh, one is the gift and the the relationship behind holding space for other people's stories because so often we move through the world just with our own stories, our own narratives. Yes. And what, what a gift to stop and ask somebody what was or what is your story or your experience with this thing, especially related to our parents in which like teachers or when we're kids, like adults in our lives, we move through the world. They're there to support us and hold us and do all these things for us. And then only as we become adults or parents ourselves or whatever it's like oh they were human beings they were my age now when this was happening and I have this whole set of experiences Mm -hmm. um and so I think yeah like having that realization is it like shifts things dramatically and I'm curious what those conversations have been like with your parents if you had some of them already um and maybe you can speak to just a little bit how your dynamics with your parents and your family, like maybe your wider family, have changed over the years um, or shifted? Those conversations are definitely in progress. I think I'm still doing the work to uh, know the right questions to ask and to do the work of holding those and being respectful to my family because I think that they will be painful Mm -hmm. when we have them. They often are. Uh, painful Mm -hmm. when we have those conversations and I'll also acknowledge there's also a lot of moments of joy when we tell stories about Mm -hmm. Evan or uh, we remember our favorite moments or 
uh, things about him mm-hmm. or things about our family. So holding both of those, it's not yeah. all just a mm-hmm. process of yes. grief when right. we have those stories Absolutely. that we <clears throat> call Evan back into our present present day lives. Yeah. Do you have an example of a story or mm-hmm. like a good memory? Good question. My there's a picture. I don't remember it. It's because we have a picture of it. But my something about my brother and I is that we we took a lot of naps, but we mm. took a lot of sudden naps. So we'd be in the middle of doing something and we'd just fall asleep. There's mm-hmm. count. There's so many pictures of my brother sitting in a high chair with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in his hand <laughs> and a bite in his mouth, and he's just asleep. Stuff. <laughs> he's just asleep. And the, my favorite picture of both of us is. We are laying on the kitchen sink, or we're laying on the kitchen sink rug, like the rug right right. in front of the kitchen sink. We are laying on our stomachs, and we're facing each other, so our our heads are turned to each other. Mm. Our arms are around each other's shoulders, Mm. and I have one of my feet kicked up, and we are are asleep. We are just, um, we must have been in mid-conversation about something exciting, and Mm. fell asleep. So that one is a really sweet one that I think about. I love that picture. And just, yeah, like I said, sibling relationships are so precious. There's such a special bond. Mm -hmm. I think for the first couple years of my life to the point where I was starting to make sense and communicate my needs, my brother did a lot of the communicating for me. Mm -hmm. So I kind of learned that I didn't really have to communicate my needs. Mm -hmm. He spoke them out for me, would make sure I got what I needed, Mm -hmm. my snack, my Mm -hmm. drinks, my blanket, my stuffed animal. Like he did a lot of that. This is what Brit needs, which is such a sweet memory. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to name that that, um, just you sharing that story makes me emotional. And I think... This has happened a few times on this in this project, but I think it's because um, we can talk about your loss and it's an abstraction and it's like a feeling and it's your experience. And then when you share a story, it's real. He's a person. He was in your life. And yeah. um, thank you for bringing him in. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, friend. <laughs> yeah, I just think, um, I think that's so powerful and beautiful to like, I, I don't want these conversations to just be in an intellectual space. I want them also to be um, this, like a sharing and a, a realness. And these are human beings that we walk through life with. And I guess one of the things that just came up with that image is like, um, he walked with you for the first 12 years of your life. Yeah. And it's tender to recall those moments because they, they're such big years because I was so small and so tender. And he was my big, like he was my older sibling. He was my caretaker in a lot of ways. And, my best friend in the sense that we were together all the time. A lot of our collective memories as a family are are focused on us two mm, together right. in our relationship. Um, yeah, and it's been so long that I've been without him. Mm. That to really embody and be in those moments of having that person that I walk through my life with, yeah. literally, first steps yeah. and on is... I feel so far away 
because he's been gone for so long, but also such important big parts of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. stories and hearing about who those individuals were makes them feel more real mm-hmm. and not just a memory or an idea yeah. but um yeah mm-hmm. I just love I love that I love that little image of like two little tiny bodies <laughs> laying on a kitchen floor and I, yeah I think you know we live in a world that is so future and um like forward movement focused that I think there's one of the consequences of that is that we tend to devalue things that are have, have, are in the past mm-hmm. and devaluing things that don't appear to be permanent. And so I think, like, for example, a friendship that people like best friends forever, BFFs, devalues the idea of I had a friendship that lasted one year for the time that I lived in this space. And that friendship is no less important because it only lasted a year. Um, I think there's an aversion to, yeah, I don't know, things that have like come and gone as being, that's still valuable and part of who I am. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense in the context of that, but yeah, that's. It does. It does in the sense that it's also most people that know me in my life right now don't know me in the context of mm-hmm. having a sibling or having mm-hmm. a relationship with my brother. Mm-hmm. So it feels, it's hard to understand that or see that. It's mm-hmm. so visceral for me because I experienced it, but mm-hmm. if that wasn't a part of my experience of knowing Brit as a sister, mm-hmm. there's not a lot to tie it down to mm-hmm. or draw it, draw it back to or mm-hmm. compare. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like we were talking about this morning when you meet somebody with short hair and you just assume this person has short hair. They've always had short hair. Yeah. (laughs) And then later you're like, oh my gosh, you used to have very long hair. (laughs) You know, anyway, it's kind of a silly example, but yeah, we kind of assume people's identities are permanent. Mm -hmm. And the one that we see is the one that exists. And I think that's partially why people have such a hard time, like you were naming when you have friendships like through middle school and high school we kind of get narrowed into this this is so-and-so their identity is this because it's always been that way Mm -hmm. and then there's that reckoning that has to happen with I'm changing and feeling I'm growing and moving in different ways and there's like resistance Mm -hmm. to that change happening and I think especially in middle school high school there's Mm -hmm. like a very strong Mm -hmm. resistance to change or allowing Mm -hmm. people to be who they are and become who they want to be in those spaces Mm -hmm. or at least I felt a lot of pressure to conform Mm -hmm. to a to a way of being such such a tender age for anyone Mm -hmm. and especially I can imagine trying to grapple with really big questions of death and suicide and 
mm-hmm. yeah, like shifting family dynamics. And, yeah. and if you've never talked about it, mm-hmm. and then one day mm-hmm. you just bring it. I didn't have the ability just to bring it up casually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that yeah. was was really helpful for college and thereafter. Mm. I think in the process of getting to know new people, that gave the opportunity to share that story and mm-hmm. start to understand it and learn how to tell that story. Mm-hmm. I had to learn that. Did you? How to tell that story of that grief and loss. Mm-hmm. I right. didn't. It's still evolving in how I yeah. tell that story of how it feels. Mm-hmm. Does that, can you? Yes. Yeah, I think, again, storytelling being such a powerful force in the way that we move about the world, the stories we tell ourselves and other people. Mm-hmm. I want to hear about, you had mentioned that part of your process of taking care of yourself after that loss, like immediately after, involved journaling. And so to me, that's, yeah, a form of storytelling and processing. And so I'm curious, like, tell me about that. It's hard to imagine that I asked myself to do that. But what I did was I, I wonder now if that's something I intuitively knew that the year that maybe I wouldn't have a lot of support. And my parents were definitely present. They were there for me. They they supported me. It wasn't... My parents were definitely present there with me, but I also recognized that they were holding mm-hmm. their own grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were both... We were all in our grief process. But for the year after my... The year after my brother passed away, I made a commitment to myself or just maybe intuitively knew I had to have some way to process and I wasn't processing with my family. I wasn't processing with other friends. I wasn't processing with other family members. Mm -hmm. And I made a commitment that every single night, at least for the first year after he died, at the end of every day, I would write in my journal. This is 12-year-old Brent or 13-year-old Yeah, at that point, he passed away a few years before my, or a few weeks before my 13th birthday. Mm. So at that age, I just said, and I still have that journal, of course, but every single day I checked Mm. in with how I was feeling. And some of it had to do, when I look back, some of it had to do directly with my brother. And some of it was just, you know, silly Mm -hmm. eighth grade Brit things, but I had some way, Mm. some book, something physical and solid that I checked Mm. in with every single night and wrote down how Mm. I was feeling. Wow. The, the power of young Brit predicting and taking care of herself, like predicting what her needs would be and taking care of them is astounding. And I was thinking that earlier when you were talking about just the way you were articulating about what, um, like how you showed up for your family in a different way and seeing that as a process of trying to, you know, quicken or hasten a sense of right in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, even just to name that and articulate that, I think is also, wow, powerful mm-hmm. and not, not something that is come too easily or come by just like by happenstance. Like it's clear that you've put the time and the effort and the love and the struggle in to making sense of and understanding how it's impacted you and your soul and your heart and the people around you. So I just think that's so beautiful. And I also want to name that 
it doesn't happen. A lot of it, mm-hmm. it might sound like a lot of it was done on my own, mm-hmm. and certainly sure. it has been, but a lot of it's had to come through community mm-hmm. and meeting other folks that have experienced loss or grief mm-hmm. and being able to share their own. Mm-hmm. That's been some of the most powerful mm-hmm. understandings, being able to understand myself mm-hmm. in relation to other people sharing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, gosh, I think that that's, it's such a solitary activity mm-hmm. in this culture, mm-hmm. in the society, in some parts of this culture, in and the culture and society I'm immersed in mm-hmm. regularly, it's often a very solo mm-hmm. um, activity to process your grief and loss alone, mm-hmm. is my perception. And I think that the community aspect of it has to be present. Yeah. Absolutely has to be present. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you had if, if any sense of like where that impulse came from to do the journaling. Like if you had seen that modeled somewhere, do you know? Or... If, I do not know. Yeah. I love to write as a child. I'm an yeah. avid journaler now. Mm-hmm. And journaling has always been a place where I, uh, when I wrestle through the process of writing, I understand myself more deeply. Mm-hmm. Those are words I have now that I understand mm-hmm. why I love to write. But I don't recall. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anyone suggested I do that Mm -hmm. I don't think I heard about that anywhere I think it was this is what I'm going to do yeah and then I did it there's something so amazing you're a teacher you work with youth there's something so amazing about watching young people make decisions from their own experiences even though they haven't been on the planet very long like I have experiences in my own life and I've seen it in other people where Mm -hmm. it's kind of this might like where did that come from like they just knew that's what they wanted to do mm-hmm. or they just I think kids often have this unfiltered uh pull towards things and it's so interesting like in our teenage years I think a lot of that starts to get muddled with external commentary about oh you're good at this or you should do this or don't do that or I had a bad experience so I'm going to project onto you and that starts to muddle our our internal narratives a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's something really beautiful about these like natural impulses that arise mm-hmm. before some of that like external mm-hmm. influence starts to muddle in. I think some of the most powerful, how do I say this? One of the things that we are collectively worst at is harnessing the power of our youth. Mm. I feel like we often just dismiss mm. humans until they turn 18 or 19. <laughs> and there is so mm. much power and beauty at that age that we're not, we don't, we don't know how, mm-hmm. how to hold space and make space for those folks to step forward. Yeah. But that's a whole other right. conversation. <laughs> Three hours later. Right. Yeah. Um... I feel like what I would love to be able to do is share some statistics or like data or information about teenagers and young people coming into their own identities and feeling empowered. And in conjunction with that, truly understanding then the impact of what it means for a teenager to take their own life because maybe they're feeling 
disempowered or disconnected or not finding their identity or not feeling supported in whatever their identity is. We don't, I don't know Evan's story. Maybe, maybe we don't know collectively. Um, but I feel like, I, so I don't have any of those statistics or data, but I, I just kind of want to like frame what we're talking about within that context of um, that, the tragedy of that, mm-hmm. that we lost a young person. We, like our collective, yep, collective responsibility. We failed this person to support them in such a way that they chose or felt that they needed to leave. Mm-hmm. And um, just what you're saying, we're not harnessing the power mm-hmm. that this person, who knows what they could have contributed in a lifetime. You know? mm-hmm. So the loss is certainly personal and the loss is collective too. Um, and seems to be growing, mm-hmm. right? Which is deeply, deeply sad to see mm-hmm. and witness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And whether or not, as individuals, we can relate to that on a personal level, we are truly all affected by that. And so it is. It is again. It is our responsibility. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else you want to say or share or something like about death or loss in general or your brother or any of this? I'm really grateful that we're having these conversations. I'm really grateful for, I think it's another space where we will often choose comfort over discomfort and this topic is often deeply uncomfortable especially suicide, which can be wrapped up with so much shame, guilt, blame. I'm incredibly lucky that my family stayed together. I think the stat for Mm. parents that choose to separate after suicide is, I want to say it's like 87 or 89%. It's like a very, very, very high number. And I feel incredibly lucky for that. But the work to do to be present, to have conversations about these really sticky, really messy, really uncomfortable parts of ourself is strengthening. Mm-hmm. Is strengthening who we are as mm-hmm. humans to be able to hold space for ourselves and for others and to process and move through over and over and over again that pain. Mm. Uh, and I'm really grateful for spaces that offer that. Mm. So thank you to you. Mm. Thank you for holding space. Mm. Feel really grateful. Mm, me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. I mean, time and time again, with these conversations, that theme comes up of, yeah, this is hard and uncomfortable, and it feels really powerful and wonderful when we do it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to you for bringing in your own vulnerability and your own story, doing it with authenticity <laughs> and honesty. I guess, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, thanks, friend. friend. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I just want to say one more thing, which is that I am not an expert. I'm not here to tell people how to grieve or heal or what death is or isn't. 
My main goal with this project is simply to create space for us to share our stories about death and dying. And from that collective experience, enable all of us to feel less alone in facing the challenges of grief and loss. Thank you for listening, for being brave and vulnerable, and for your time. Any questions or comments, please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you and perhaps share your story too.